This is Archive Atlanta, episode 193, H.M. Patterson and Spring Hill Mortuary. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey everyone, happy Friday. So next week is Halloween, and I want to capitalize on this Halloween season, which is a time when those not typically into cemeteries or funeral homes or death-related history kind of seem to seek it out, right? Or be a little bit more open to it. And so if you listen to the Halloween episode from 2020, you will remember my good friend and fellow podcaster Liz Clappin coming on to talk about the history of grave robbing uh, in general and in Atlanta. So this year, we're talking about Atlanta's most prestigious funeral home, Spring Hill Mortuary. Its creator, Hyatt Patterson, but also the history of funeral homes in general, the practice of embalming. We talk architecture. We talk historic preservation. uh, We talk about the transformation of this funeral home into the modern age, the SCI model, and so much more. So if you enjoy the episodes, you have to listen to Tomb with a View, which is Liz's podcast. I'll have all the links in the show notes. But without further ado, I hope you enjoy. So when was the last time we did this joint episode? Was it 2020? Yeah, it was two years ago. Two years ago. I remember being so excited because I actually got to leave the house and it was Oh, yes. It was was COVID. Um, So two years ago at this exact table, Tomb of the View at Archive Atlanta, did grave robbing, which I have met people out in the wild and it's some of their favorite episodes. So hopefully, you know, no pressure, but we are back at it in 2022. And we're going to talk about a funeral home, a famous funeral home and funeral director in Atlanta. But first, I'm going to let Liz introduce herself. So my name is Liz Clappen. I do my own podcast uh, on cemeteries. It's called Tomb of the View. Um, In my real life job, I'm an architectural historian. But cemeteries are my specialization. So I focus on funerary art and architecture the intersection of both of them, looking at them from the point of preservation, a lot of different things. But yes, I do love cemeteries. Yes. And I mean, we talk about cemeteries all year long. We visit them all year long, but it seems like October, other people are interested in cemeteries. Yes. And so we're just, we're using this opportunity to like lure you all into the other side where we talk about this all, all year long. Um, especially with Liz's podcast, I always say like, it's a, it's a podcast about cemeteries, but I leave every episode knowing way much more about different topics like U.S. government and wars and marble and granite. And uh, I always feel a lot smarter. So we're excited to have Liz here and tell us what we're talking about today. So Victoria asked me to brainstorm on topics and I will say that ghost stories are not usually my thing but I am really interested in the idea of how funerals and death care and cemeteries and all of that kind of weirdly shape our lives and so I looked at a couple of topics and this was one that the deeper I dove into it the more interesting it became and today we're going to be talking about the history of funeral homes in Atlanta and probably the most famous definitely the most celebrity filled and kind of like the most interesting in my experience of the funeral homes and that is H.M. Patterson and Sons which is maybe not the oldest funeral home in Atlanta but it definitely is the most famous and definitely the longest running. And but before we keep going we are talking about a white funeral home. Yes. And when we talk about oldest or longest running or whatever it is in the category of a white funeral home. 
I want to talk about this for a quick second because um, I always I always use this and I credit you for it. But in 2022, funeral homes are very segregated and openly kind of segregated, right? Like no one is trying to desegregate a funeral home. So we we are still in death are very segregated. Oh, absolutely. And it's interesting because Atlanta still has a very vibrant black funeral home community. It's one of the more vibrant that I've seen, but I think this is true in a lot of cities. When desegregation happens legally in the 1960s, black funeral homes, black cemeteries, a lot of previously segregated institutions actually suffer more because of desegregation, which I always find interesting. But it's like when you have the option, and a lot of people saw it as a status symbol that they could finally go to a white funeral home. So like, or, to or a even white South, cemetery. like like you don't have to be in Southview, you could be Correct. at Westview. But I think also it has to do with the part of town that you're located in. It has to do with your proximity to different cemeteries. So in terms of this, I think that when we look at the history of things, things, it's also like you're physically located in an area that is more white or an area that was more black. And I think that those segregation lines do shape how these institutions develop. So anyway, just putting that out there because I think that that's important to talk about because I'm sure black funeral homes in Atlanta are their own episode. Because like you said, there are some very long running ones. Um, But we're talking about H.M. Patterson. So let's start with, I guess, the man himself. But maybe before we do that, I have some general questions. So when did funeral homes as a concept start? So funeral homes, which we call them that today, but generally were referred to as undertakers in the 19th century. This is really a trend that emerges post-Civil War. Prior to the Civil War, a couple of things happened. Most death care was done at home. It was done by the family. And that was considered, first of all, just a, from a care perspective, I think it was seen as, you know, you took care of your own. The big thing that happens post-Civil War is the rise of embalming. So during the Civil War, you have a couple of things happening. First of all, you have trains. So embalming of bodies really becomes popularized with Abraham Lincoln when he was embalmed after his assassination and he was sent... Funeral train. You have an episode about a funeral I do, train. I do, I do, I <laughs> do, yes. But he was, he was sent via train, right, to yes, like, two he different was. cities? Yes, he was, and people came out to see him. Oh. So he was actually, embalming at this point was kind of, even though embalming has been around since the Egyptians, it was just rising in popularity. But you see a lot of these folks who are generals in the Civil War, who are not the common soldiers, but like the higher up if you had money and things like that you would have your remains shipped home and they would embalm you. Now, these are pretty rough embalming techniques compared to what we do today. But you would be, they would use preservatives. Obviously, the one that people are most familiar with is things like formaldehyde. You would be preserved. You would be sent home and you could get there relatively intact. Like at least not rotting. Yes. Okay. And But this is only for generals or higher ups. I, I never thought, I always kind of told the story like it was anybody, but a regular soldier isn't going to be able to afford that. It really isn't. And that's the reason that more than half of the folks in the Civil War are never identified. So when you have these monuments to massive amounts of unidentified soldiers, it's because of that. Um, This is before the use of dog tags. Dog tags don't start to be used until the First World War. And one of the reasons for that is just because of the amount of unidentified remains. And so with the rise of embalming, you have the rise of undertakers. And undertakers are people who are specifically trained in preservation of remains 
to lay them out. And so with that comes a couple of things. So first of all, these people start by going to your house and they will embalm you and they will lay you out in your parlor. So the term funeral parlor eventually comes from the idea that they are creating an atmosphere like would be in the parlor of your home. But so they would do it at your house first. They would come to your house, prepare the body there, lay it out there and leave. Yes. And so it's interesting when you look at these original funeral parlors, a lot of them weren't what we think of today where you go and they actually have a building. What they originally were is livery stables. So they would have carriages, they would have hearses, eventually like nice horse-drawn hearses that would haul remains. And so when you see a lot of these people, a lot of them start as two things. They start as cabinet makers who also make coffins and they start as people who own livery stables so they can actually house the horses and the hearses that haul the bodies. Wow, so it's like a side gig. It's like, hey, I own a livery stable, but let me learn how to embalm. It is, and if you were in a smaller town, definitely would have been that. Because in smaller towns, you don't really have funeral parlors developing until the mid 20th century. Wow. Like I know my great grandmother, she died in 1942 and they laid her out in the parlor. But they didn't live in a big city. If you lived in a big city, I think that was part of the attraction. But now I have seen many funerals where similar is the body is laid out in in the home and then brought to the cemetery. But I don't know why in my brain, I didn't think that the preparation was happening there. I thought, I don't know why, I just, I thought they were doing it somewhere else and then bringing her home. But this was all at home. It was. And they would, a lot of times, it's either a gravity fed or a pump fed system for embalming. I mean, I don't know how deep you want to get into it. No, let's do it. It's Halloween. (laughs) Exactly. So the basic idea is it's kind of a loop system where you open up arteries, generally one in the neck and one at the bottom of the body. And through force, you push the blood out and then you replace the blood with whatever type of preservative you were using. We don't need to go into all the other gross details. You can't see my face, but we haven't eaten yet, but I am like (laughs) making faces. So we may not be able to make it through this whole explanation, but so that is happening though in your living room. Um, Generally, or like in a place where they can do that. And we've all probably seen on a television show where they have those sort of enamel embalming tables where they have like the drainage on the side. And that's one of the reasons eventually it, it is kind of messy. And I will say, I am not an expert in embalming. I, I can tell you the basics. I don't think we really need to get into the nitty gritty of it. (laughs) And I will tell you, the first time I ever heard about this, fun fact, was at my father's wake. And I can remember the man that did the funeral. I had a cousin who she was about 10 at the time. And she came up and she asked him. And he went through and he explained this to her. And I can remember being older. He explained this in in detail? In the very general terms, basically, that I just gave to you. Wow. And I asked him afterwards, and I said to him, I said, Brad, I said, why, why did you tell her that? And he goes, he's like, in my experience, people are more afraid of things that they don't understand. And he said, so I could tell her a fairy story. I could explain to her. He said, but you know what? He's like, inherently, it's not really scary. And he says, yeah, some people are squeamish about that. But he said, now she will know that there's nothing to be afraid of, that it's just a process just like anything else. And so I always try to think about it that way. The overall procedure, yes, they have gotten much better and much more high tech and we have better chemicals today and we have, you know, sterile rooms and all kinds of yeah. procedures, but the overall practice has not really changed. So did did this man start off also as either livery owner or a So so Hyatt Patterson, who is the founder of HM Patterson, 
he starts off, he's actually from Ohio originally, so he's from Morrill County, Ohio, and he actually grows up on a farm, and he does a couple of things before he eventually goes and moves to Cleveland. So in 1872, he moves to Cleveland, Ohio, and there he becomes an apprentice to an undertaker. So this is that exact time period. We're talking less than 10 years after the Civil War, but already the popularity of embalming during the Civil War is catching on and people want that. And he's in the big city, so people in Cleveland are using undertakers. Exactly. By the time he moves to Atlanta, less than a decade later, so he moves to Atlanta in 1881 and he opens H.M. Patterson the following year in September of 1882 with a partner. And so his partner is a man named George Boaz. And George Boaz, like we already talked about, guess what he has? He has a livery stable. Oh, so he learns undertaking in Ohio. He comes to Atlanta and he's like, hey, guy with the carriages, let's get into business. And that's exactly what he does. Okay. And he becomes very successful very quickly for a major reason, because he is contracted to do a major funeral. Oh, whose funeral? Alexander Stevens. The vice president of the Confederacy. Absolutely. I toured his house, which is so random. That's why I know this. So what year did he die? Uh, This I don't actually know, but it's around this time. (laughs) Again, we should have... It's one of those things that, like, I know that he becomes famous for that. See, I would assume that you would know well, this. Well, no, no. God, please. Civil War stuff is not my thing. I mean, <laughs> I will say that the, the Park Service woman that did the tour of his house was so lovely, but that's all I remember. Um, but I see what you're saying. Somewhere in the 1880s. Yes. He's so early doing... And this skyrockets him to popularity. Oh. And so the fact, and there are actually, you can read accounts, um, and I don't have Victoria's Wi-Fi password, so I can't even Google this, and I don't have my phone with me. So I, I can't even look up Alex. Alexander Stevens and when he died. But so he does die not too long after the inception of this business. And beca- 1883. 18, so about a year after they opened this business. Okay. Oh, so that's like a boom for him. It is. And so he's contracted for this and people take notice. The people who are movers and shakers and are tastemakers oh. for, you know, so what they're it's like, worth. I want the same undertaker as Stevens. And that's exactly it. And so it's actually fascinating if you read the advertisements, even from the very beginning. So I actually have one from about a month after this is open. So H.M. Patterson, undertaker, with G.R. Boaz, proprietor. Number 18 Lloyd Street, Markham House Block, Atlanta, Georgia. Keeps a full line of metallic and wood, caskets and coffins, burial robes, etc. of the best manufacturers. Fine hearses and carriages at reasonable prices. Prompt attention to telegraphic and other orders day and night. A perfect embalming process. Located opposite the telegraph office, smart business practice, and the passenger depot. So this was a really big deal. So he set up in a place that was probably pretty high in rent, but also it was in the thick of things. They could get telegraphic orders. And in terms of the passenger depot, they could not only accommodate people who were coming to the city, they could get deliveries of things like caskets and coffins mm-hmm. and also delivery of bodies. Yes, I have. I remember when we did when we did the grave robbing that some bodies were transferred via train, especially in those early years from medical school to medical school. Oh, absolutely, huge thing. Interesting. So he, so there, I have in my notes here. There is a fire in the Markham House in 1896. Yes. Right. So he's operating great until 1896, and then after the fire, he sets up shop somewhere else. Yes, on Peachtree. Oh, on number, 30, number 32 Peachtree. Okay. And okay. so he doesn't stay there long. He's only there about eight years before he moves into his, what will be kind of like the showroom for 
the, the most considerable length of time for him. Okay. And he, so next thing he does is he moves to North Forsyth Street, which okay. is right next to... Carnegie Library. Yes. Which today, yeah. the downtown library, the downtown central library, um, I, I was joking earlier because I work right near there, so I walk by it probably every day. Um, now I can have a d- different visual. At this point, is he traveling to people's houses still, you think? So now, at a certain point, he does set up in the more, what we would today call, funeral parlor setting. And okay. that is definitely something that happens on Forsyth Street. Okay, I was because that's 1904, he opens on North Forsyth. So at that point, people are going there for the funeral. Yes, and that's what starts to happen, is that more and more, a big selling point for these facilities is that they are luxurious, they have really high-end things, And H.M. Patterson is very successful. He does very well for himself. And it's interesting because I kind of tried to look up where he lived. And he lived all over the place, but he actually lived in a lot of luxury apartments. Yeah, I meant to ask you that. So, but back up. He gets married before he he comes to Atlanta married, right? Yes, he does. And so his wife is a woman who was born Clara Wakefield. Okay. And she's actually from Birmingham, England. Okay. So he marries an English woman. Do they have a kid before they move to Atlanta? So they have two children. They have a son and a daughter. So his son, Fred, will eventually end up taking over the business after his death. They also have a daughter who she does marry, and she definitely is more of a socialite type. Ah, okay. Um, She will eventually marry a man named Benjamin Noble, um, who I believe is actually from Birmingham, Alabama. So he, how long does he operate at North Forsyth Street? So he operates there for the rest of his life. So until he dies, which he dies um, in 1923, October 25th, 1923. So his wife, Clara, dies in March, and he dies, like, six months later. Oh, gosh. Now, how old was the son? Like, was he preparing the bodies, you think? Oh, he was, he was fully involved in oh, the business. Oh, he was? Yeah, okay. he absolutely was fully involved in the business. Um, and so he was born, like I said, before they came to Atlanta. I can't remember if the daughter was okay, born Okay, so he yet. was, you're saying, he's older, he's, he's in the family business. Yes, and H.M. Patterson was born in the 1840s. So, okay. like, he was... 40 years old when he moved to Atlanta. He was not a young man. So he was already established. He was already married. Had, you know, worked a decent amount before he moved to Atlanta. Which is, I think, one of the reasons he became so successful is I think he already had a little bit of business smarts. He already had a little bit of experience. So 1923 he dies? He dies. And then what happens? Well, at this point, and I really have to give credit to his son, Fred, because Fred has a vision. And he has a vision for expansion expansion of the geographic range of where they're going to work and also the physical grandeur of what they're going to have. So he has this vision of this unbelievably luxurious and exotic funeral home. And he also has the idea that as Atlanta grows, they need to grow with it. And so he proposes building a new funeral home, which will be eventually constructed in 1928 further out than before. And so he is going to construct what we today think of as H.M. Patterson, and that is the Spring Hill Chapel. Got it. And what's the intersection there? The, or the address? So that is the intersection of 10th and Spring. Okay. So 10th, it's funny that 10th and Spring is far out there, right? It, like that he's thinking almost like we're going OTP. <laughs> oh, absolutely. 
And it's fascinating because you can read, this was, we don't tend to think of funeral homes as being this, but this was revolutionary because now I will confess, I have actually never been inside. I didn't get to ever go to Spring Me neither. So if anyone listening can get us in, we'd appreciate it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, which I will say, so Spring Hill Chapel is no longer open, but H.M. Patterson does still still operate. And I'll talk a little bit about what H.M. Patterson becomes later on. They start this expansion, so they are going to build their empire out of this. And so it's really fascinating. So if you read, the, there are numerous articles in 1928 about this, about this whole process and what they are doing and how they are building this entire brand. And what we see is that a couple of things are happening. So at this time, they hire one of Atlanta's best-known architects, who is? Philip Chutzy. Chutzy, yes. Yeah. So Shutzi, who I believe originally studied under Neil Reed, correct? Yeah. Listen, I'm not the architect person, but it's like Neil Reed, Adler, they were a group. Mm-hmm. But I know that Neil Reed and Philip Shutzi have kind of go on go out on their own as like the, the iconic. And and they collaborate a lot of yes, times where yes. it'll be a Neil yes. Reed house uh, oh, and yes. a Shutzi I went, garden. Yes. I went to a house where it was a exactly Neil Reed house, Shutzi Garden, which is like wow, talk about talk about the pinnacle of architecture in Atlanta. Oh, absolutely. And so Shutzi, what the thing you have to understand about him is he is a classicist. And in terms of that, so he really harkens back and Neil Reed too. Um, but Chutzi, this is what he is known for, is he is a classicist. Which he, is what? To, to us non-architectural historians. <laughs> so he favors the classical styles. And so these are neoclassical in the, fa- in the fact that he is inspired by Greek, Roman, Revival styles. Um, so think about the houses that you have probably seen that Chutzi has designed. Yeah, it's all columns, mm-hmm. symmetrical. Yeah, exactly. Okay. But also it harkens back to classical Revival styles in the United States. So when you think about things like Colonial Williamsburg, when you think about things like Independence Hall in Philadelphia, when you think about the classical styles of Boston at Faneuil Hall and things like that, if you've ever done the Freedom Trail, he is inspired not just by the original classicist in Greek and Rome, but the neoclassical. So it's very northern, over. New Englandy, or just Philadelphia. Okay, I see what you're saying. Absolutely. And so when you see the design that he makes at Spring Hill Mortuary, what you see is a very classically inspired design. So do we know why they called it Spring Hill? So what I have read is that they were actually inspired by a place called Spring Hill outside of Mobile, Alabama. But also, it was like, geographically, it is one of the highest points in the city of Atlanta. right. And so I can remember when I first came here, um, whenever I would, from where I live, when I would come down 10th, so come past Piedmont Park, come past that part of Midtown, come past where Margaret Mitchell lived, all of that, you would come in, and it's very impressive, because, you know, there's a massive parking lot next to it now. But you would just look up the hill, and there's this beautiful, it looks like a white mansion on the hill. But it's a funeral home. And that was intentional. So when you read about the design of this funeral home, first of all, it was meant to be a homage to the brilliance of H.M. Patterson. It was dedicated to his memory. It was the fulfillment of all of the things that he wanted out of his business. And so the design is, it's very luxurious, but it's a couple of other things. This is from an article, October 7th, 1928, in the Constitution. The structure itself is designed to fit the ideas of Mr. Patterson. 
who desired three separate entrances to take care of different types of clients at different times. The south entrance is for the exclusive use of patrons desiring to make arrangements for funerals. In the center is strictly for business patrons, meaning people who are casket salesmen, those type of things. And then the north entrance is to the chapel where the funeral services are being inducted. And so this is very progressive for the to time. To have three entrances is like a new idea. Well, first of all, it's luxury. That means you have money. Oh. So they, they, they spend a fortune on this building. At the time in the 20s, now granted, it is the booming 20s. So there's a lot of money and there's a lot going through there. But also, it's very sensitive to the modern sensibility about things is that, okay, people who are coming to arrange funerals are going to be very bereft. They need to be taken to a place that's comfortable, a place that is not going to upset them any further when they They don't want to see the formaldehyde delivery guy. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And this is a very progressive idea, and it's super smart. Interesting. Because I've also, sadly, been in enough funeral homes in my day where they are very cold and they are very sterile, and they don't take care of that sensibility. Because you know what? Sometimes the casket delivery guy, the guy that's delivering flowers, is going to come through that. So there is essentially, like, the center part is, like, the all business and service entrance. But also, it's still impressive enough that people come in and they take them seriously, that they're going to sell them the highest quality of products. And the same way that, you know, if you are a mover and shaker coming to a major funeral of some of the famous people that have been buried out of Spring Hill Mortuary, people like, oh, I don't know, Margaret Mitchell herself. Oh, Wow. So Margaret Mitchell's funeral was held out of there. There is a long list, multiple mayors, people like Ivan Allen, things really? like that. So yeah, a lot of very famous people have been buried on his And this, it's interesting, he goes from like the dad did Alexander Stevens, and so then the son takes over into the era of more famous people. Yes, absolutely. Wow. And it's interesting because they stay the undisputed kind of champions. It's not like they're famous just at the beginning. Even today, I think a lot of people who are very famous choose Spring Hill. That's so interesting. So did did the son, what's his name again? Frederick? Fred. Fred. Did Fred have his own children? In the articles that I've read, it appears that, you know, it stays in the family. So Fred dies in 1972. Okay. So, oh, he operates until 72? Yeah, he operates. And he dies at like almost 90, I believe. Wow. And he was still working? I mean, at that point, I believe he had trained other people. So it appears that the, the family that takes over after him, I believe, is Alan, and they are kind of like specifically trained and work with him. Um, So Daniel Allen takes over after him, and then his three sons run it through the 80s into the 90s. Um, So Fred, Dan, and Hugh. And I'm a little, I'm a little confused on exactly what the connection is, because I believe that there was also a connection through Benjamin Noble, who was the husband of... Of the daughter, of Hyatt's daughter. Correct. Okay. So this wasn't Fred's direct children taking over. I'm not positive because okay, okay. I've read I read a lot of newspaper articles and so if somebody wants to like update us <laughs> because I'm sure somebody out there knows this the Patterson family call us <laughs> okay yeah so um but what we see is that the interesting that happens is that so it stays in the family through the 50s 60s 70s and it, it continues to expand so in the 50s what you will see is that there is actually um they're actually expanding and they're buying out some of the other funeral homes that have been in business, many cases, almost since H.M. Patterson started. But for a second, I want to go back a little bit yeah, and I want to talk yes. a little bit more about the funeral home because I'm an architectural historian. Yes, and this no, is the no, most interesting we kind of skipped over a bit. 
So in addition to that, they have a huge garden. The garden is one of the things that is no longer there. It was eventually kind of sacrificed and cannibalized to give them more parking mm. as automobiles become more and more prevalent. But at the top, there's also, there's a beautiful porte-cochere so you can pull up and you can get out and the lovely ladies in their gowns can get out and go into the chapel and they don't have to worry about getting wet. The other interesting thing is, is that, you know, this funeral chapel is based off one of these classic things. So the chapel itself, quote, is a gem of the ensemble, being a miniature reproduction of the assembly room at the Massachusetts State House in Boston, so the old state house. In it is the, the ceiling is the purest white, the ceiling is vaulted, and from it drop antique chandeliers from New England. The chapel proper will seat 225 persons, but chairs may be placed in the small anterooms opening onto the chapel, and the seating capacity is increased to 462. H.M. Patterson himself was a huge collector of antiques, and when they furnished this new chapel and when they furnished the funeral home, they did it with real antiques, real, like, colonial-era antiques that were part of the Patterson's collection. It's also designed so that, like, the further back in the building you went to the more utilitarian spaces, the embalming rooms, they also had on-site apartments, though. Where so like if you needed to go to a retiring room, if you if the family wanted to prepare, they needed a place to go to have a snack or to have tea in a, the long arduous process of, you know, the funeral. It had all of that. It had these luxury wow. rooms. It also had apartments for people like embalmers, employees, all of those things upstairs. Wow. So it's a two-story structure? Oh, it's massive. It oh, is. Oh, okay. And it is a large and laid out, like in these articles, you see all of those things where they talk about this. For kicks, I will show you a photo right now so you can take a look at this. Is So when you look at it, it looks like an English manor house. Oh, it does. It, it does. It really is. It looks like a little English manor compound. That's exactly what it is. Oh. Which kind of goes with the late 20s style of like, even um, Avondale Estates mm -hmm. or the Virginia Highland stuff, like it is that English manor look. The Tudor revival. Yes, absolutely. Tu there you go. I am not the architectural historian. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's interesting though, because it's like, so if you went into the public spaces, you didn't have to see any of that unsavory stuff. Mm. And to show how impressive this was, they opened it up for a week, not for funerals, but from. 7.30 to 10 o'clock every night, they opened it up to the public for them to come in and just to tour it. And talk about salesmanship, it's kind of like having a, um, you know, a model home in a new oh, subdivision. Oh, yeah, no, for sure. Where you can come in and they have it all tricked <laughs> hey, out. Hey, wait, Grandpa died. Remember we toured that funeral home? That's really interesting. It's also just smart salesmanship because the fact is, this was something also that when they started to expand out, what you will see is that the other chapels that they buy up in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s, they start to rebrand them with their own kind of aesthetic. Oh. Now, nothing I think will ever quite match up with Spring Hill Mortuary. Okay. That is the crown So jewel. you're saying they, they buy out other places and keep their locations. Yes. So they, they go from having this one central location here to other ones. Absolutely. And that, that happens in the 50s? Yes, mostly in the 50s. And some of them don't work out. So, for example, in 1958, in November, there is a rezoning that is proposed along Campbelltown Road in the area that's like today we would call... Cascade? More no? Venetian Hills. Okay, okay. So more Venetian Hills. 
And so the proposal would have turned the area from residential to commercial, and at the center of it was going to be an exact replica of the Spring Hill Mortuary in Southwest Atlanta. Really? And they turned down the rezoning, and it never happens. But it was like there was like a $3 million proposal. They had spent all this money, and Fred Patterson was a huge one that really wanted to push it. Now, at the time, Mayor Hartsfield was still in office, and he was sort of a a big person who voted against this. So it was like a very controversial thing. Interesting. So I think it's important to keep in mind that like the funeral industry was big money and big power plays. And so while they were successful in taking over, like there's one that's like, uh, they turn. They have like an Oglethorpe Chapel, and they still have like a huge property up, um, like kind of like on the Atlanta Sandy Springs line. All of this was part of their big power play, and they make all this money because they are real estate investors. So funeral homes go from being very simple, like oh hey, this one guy knows how to embalm, and he made friends with a guy who owns carriages, to being major real estate investors who have millions upon millions of dollars. And I think that this is one of the reasons that the most infamous funeral home deal doesn't end up happening because I think that the power play became a little bit dangerous. And of course, I know you have talked about it before that one of the big investors who really wanted to get into this business was Asa Cantler Jr., Buddy Cantler. Yes, yes. I just talked about the, the, so he bought Westview in the 40s, is that correct? Or in the 30s. Um, <laughs> so, so, I'm not the expert, yeah, but no, yeah, I believe it was in, in the 40s. Because I, I think the Abbey was built in the 40s. 44, so, yeah. And, and his dream for Westview was it was going to be a one-stop shop. It was going to be like, you died in your house, and they would just, you know, they would bring Whisk your body yep. to Westview where there, it would be prepared and embalmed and everything. And then I have been in the tunnel where you would then take the tunnel to the church abbey chapel part and have your funeral boom put you in put you into your spot and you're good to go and then there was some political drama there so like yes. so now and we talked about this like currently you cannot and correct me if i'm wrong you cannot prepare a body and bury them on the same plot yes. of land and so this was a big model and victoria knows because we did this together um that was really pushed by hubert eaton in 1917 he took over a failing location and that was forest lawn in glendale forest lawn. Yeah. liz and i went to california in february and if you have if you like cemeteries forest lawn in, in la was so great it, it, it is literally the disneyland of yes death. it is but Hubert Eaton, who had made all of his money in like mining and things like that, he came out and he was like, why can't we apply like all of the ideas that Henry Ford and all of these masters of industry have, why can't we apply that to funerals? And so his whole idea was cut out the middleman. And so you have your florist, you have your funeral home, you have all of those things together in one location. And so he does this at Forest Lawn and he becomes massively successful. So he can. So in Forest Lawn, it's allowed. In California, it was legal. Okay. And so I think what Buddy Candler was trying to do was that he was trying to take that Forest Lawn model and apply yes. it to Westview. Because you uh, see that they A hundred percent. Now exactly. this all makes sense. But what happened with Buddy Candler? Well, so Buddy Candler is, I think that he 
maybe pissed off some of the wrong people. Uh, oh, I agree. Oh, I mean, I'm trying to kind of go back to that episode. It was a long time ago. But yeah, I mean, they really ganged against him and said no. They did. And so what they did was they passed legislation. So he spent all of this money establishing the Abbey Mausoleum, which was a community mausoleum, which could hold 44,000 bodies. It is the largest in the, it's the largest community mausoleum in the United States. And so he builds this as a complex with a huge funeral home and reception space where you could have the collation afterwards. He puts this all together. And what happens is, is that other than a few offices, they never use that building. Yes. Yeah. Because they pass a law that says you cannot do that. You cannot monopolize the whole funeral model. And so while the Abbey Mausoleum is used, the other half never yes. really comes to fruition. So, and that is to, to, date, to date a law in Georgia. Yes. And so I think that the whole thing is, is that Spring Hill, they decide that they are going to make a different model. And they're like, we will have chapels all over the place and we will make them so luxurious and we will make deals with the cemetery so we can make it all a smooth transition. Oh, so while they're not on the cemetery land, they're still trying to make a connection where it's like, oh, you have your funeral here and then we just drive you over here. And Westview, eventually, they do purchase one of these chapels and they try to kind of buy off on this model. But if you read, um, and I will give credit, like if you were really interested in finding out how all this went down, you know, Jeff Clemens has written a very comprehensive history of Westview, including their foray into, you know, having greenhouses, having a florist, all of that stuff, including Westview at one point did own a funeral home that was off-premises. Oh, I didn't know that. They did, yeah. So if, if, if you, uh, and I think you also have a copy of the Westview. Yeah, oh no, I do. I, I mentioned in the beginning, Jeff and I were neighbors, and I, I think I just helped watch his cat, so he gave me a little shout out. Celebrity, celebrity. <laughs> celebrity. Uh, and I was I would say that that's what it's like to go anywhere with Victoria. It's, <laughs> it's, it's like going out in a, the entire celebrity realm. But anyways, so, um, you know, Westview eventually did take four years into this, but I will say the in the opposite end... What didn't happen is is that Spring Hill always kind of maintained their autonomy as a funeral home. And so what happens is, is while not all of these hash out, there is never a Spring Hill mortuary too, they do continue very successfully, not just to the point that they, you know, through Fred's entire life, Fred Patterson's entire life, they continue through the 70s and 80s. And then in the 90s, they again kind of hop onto this trend where they eventually end up becoming part of the Dignity brand. <gasps> they do. They do. Oh my God, Liz has such a good episode about this. I learned so much. And now when I drive by, I'm like, it's a Dignity brand. So, so Spring Hill yeah, is Dignity. It is. <gasps> and so towards the end, uh, so in the 80s, okay. I'm so we, we, we kind of skipped over. Yeah. So, so we have, so the guy, Fred, dies in the 70s. Yes, and the, the model continues like prestige. It's still a very popular film home through the 70s and 80s after his death. And what happens is eventually in the 90s, it will be purchased by Service Corporation International, which Service Corporation International continues to be the largest funeral provider in the United States. SCI is kind of the abbreviation. And they have a number of brands. Depends on where you are in the country. Here in the Southeast, it is the Dignity brand. So if you have been to Arlington Memorial Park, which is up in Sandy Springs, there is an H.M. Patterson up there. What the SCI model is, is that they come in and they purchase local funeral homes that have recognizable names. Even though Dignity buys you out, even though SCI buys the funeral home out, they keep the name because you have brand recognition. In this case, the brand is H.M. Patterson. So if you go up, there is still, H.M. Patterson still exists. 
but it is not run by the family. So what the model is, is that SCI buys the local funeral home or funeral home chain if they have multiple locations. They keep the HM Patterson name and they often keep whatever family member is running the management. And they continue to be the face of the brand because you know them, you trust them, you like them. What they do is they put the SCI branding on it. So no longer does every chapel and every funeral home have an embalmer, have somebody on staff. What they do is they take all of the bodies to a centralized location, really? the hub of their brand, and that's how SCI makes buckets and buckets and buckets of money. By, by centralizing it? Yes. And so rather than having to ha- pay for a hearse to be at every single place, they have, you know, however many, 20 hearses in a centralized garage. And so it's like, oh, hey, Spring Hill Mortuary has a funeral today. We're going to send a hearse over there. And so rather than having to have 100 hearses, they can have 20 in a centralized location. They just send them out when you need them. Instead of having to have an embalmer at every one of 20 locations, they only have to have five embalmers that work at the centralized location. And that's how they make a lot of money, and that's how they make it work. The the funeral home is still in operation at at its location there on 10th, right? Is that we said 10th? And when... SEI buys them. Yes. Okay. And, then, and up until they close, which they did not close until 2020. 2020. Yes. So until 2020, that location was an active funeral home. Correct. Now, there were rumors for years that it was going to be bought out. And it's worth noting that if you are interested in preservation in Atlanta, going back to the 80s, when preservation first started to be like a real issue. Yeah, with so, the Fox and all that. Well, yeah. So like 70s, 80s, one of the first buildings everybody's like, we need to save is Spring Hill Mortuary. Really? Because that's how grand and how beautiful this building and how significant it is in terms of its architecture, its design, the Philip Schutze model. It's largely intact. It is a landmark in the city of Atlanta. It was landmarked just a couple oh, of years okay. ago. Oh, okay. So there was protected yes. and actually that's why it's still there right correct so, okay <laughs> so 2020 they sell it to whom so in 2020 so starting in like the year 2000 there are rumors that it's going to be sold it survives like i said up until 2020 at which point basically not just the funeral home but everything around it is bought by a major development firm but because of its landmark status they cannot demolish it and it must remain largely intact and no changes can be made to it unless they are approved by the city of Atlanta because it is a landmark building. It will remain there. There have been different rumors about what they're going to do with it, like a supper club, maybe offices. Yeah, because they're, the they're doing apartments around yeah. it, right? So they're doing high-rise residential surrounding it, but it's still where it is. And, it is. and we just don't know what it's going to be. Correct. But this is why local preservation, I did an episode a long time ago with Charles Lawrence, but people don't realize like National Register means nothing. It has to be locally designated. Correct. And the reason this building is not being demolished by the developers is because it's locally protected. Exactly. And so it's interesting because like in this one building, maybe not this one building, but in the HM Patterson brand, you can see basically all of the major trends and all of the major changes like in that one yeah, building. like in the that start to finish. That's so fascinating. Up until today. And it does still exist. So yes, H. okay. Patterson so where did it move? Exist. Did it move when it sold the, the site? So H.M. Patterson, they may not have their offices there anymore, but there are, the H.M. Patterson brand does still exist. Okay. And there are still at least, I believe, four or five locations still in the Oh, I, yeah. that, they have, that they had purchased over the years? Correct. Okay. Most of them are on the perimeter or OTP now. Okay. And there are, and if you are interested in this model, like I would say, like if you go up to Arlington Memorial Park in Sandy Springs, just over the Atlanta line, it's a perfect example of the SCI model. And there are a lot of big names. So like 
the Carloses are in Arlington Memorial yes, as Park. Yes, in, as in the Carlos Museum. Yes, like, at Emory, yeah. yes. Um, in addition to probably one of the other biggest names, Arthur Blank. His, oh, they're at Arlington? Yes. Oh. So when, um, I believe both of his parents have passed now. So both of his parents are there and he will eventually be there. So if you want to see that model and you want to see some of Atlanta's new movers and shakers, guess what? They're with the SCI brand still today too. And so... I would imagine that, you know, at a certain point, they probably also are buried through the Dignity brand in the form of the modern H.M. Patterson. Interesting. So you think they'll go through H.M. Patterson, but it's still owned by SEI today slash Dignity. Exactly. And so it's so interesting that like, and this happened in the 90s, you know, Dignity still owns them up until the point where they actually, they did eventually sell out the original Spring Hill Mortuary, but there are still these brands. And I happened to see that there was one ad from... 2013 that talked about H.M. Patterson and it had a picture of the original H.M. Patterson on the Markham block where you could see H.M. Patterson and you could see Fred Patterson and all of the guys who are involved and probably Boaz is there and they're all sitting there in front of the building and they hearken back to that legacy and that's one of the great things is that that model has continued and all of these articles that you can read right up until the time that it is sold in 2020 really harken back to H.M. Patterson, the fact that he built the brand. He created this luxury idea. I don't claim to be an expert in this one particular funeral home. And believe me, I would love to do more. And I read a lot that probably doesn't come across in, the, in this particular interview because we're trying to get a lot of information in. But if you were looking for that model and if you were interested in funeral homes, this is like this one is of the it. Ones. This is this like is the Shangri La of funeral homes. Oh, absolutely. It's funny. I'm not going to lie. I've known about it, obviously, especially with it being saved or, or not demolished, but never thought twice about it. Like, just it, in my brain, it didn't. I was like, eh, a funeral home. But then again, I hadn't been inside, but didn't know this whole backstory about it. And this probably just belies what an absolute weirdo because I knew <laughs> no. back in 2019, I knew somebody who was going to a funeral that was being held there. And I was like, oh, are you okay? Do you, do you, do you need a shoulder to cry do you need on? A plus one? <laughs> Can I be your date to the funeral? Um, and it's just, it's something that, like, if you have been to enough of these, though, like, it's interesting to see how it is. And I mean, this also probably lies, like, um, both of my grandmothers have died in the last year. And I was talking to the funeral director as I was planning one of my grandmother's funerals. And it turns out he actually trained at an SCI facility. And I was trying not to be tacky, you know, as we were picking prayer cards and caskets. But I asked him and I was like, is it really as mechanized? And he says, oh, no. He's like, the place that I, I trained, you know, in their viewing rooms, they had like a carousel where the wall opened up. And so like you would prep the next body that was going to be in there the next day. And they would literally just like spin it around and the body would Ooh, switch places. Wow. And he's like, and he's like, it sounds crazy. He's like, but that's how they make it work. It's just fascinating. And that, you know, H.M. Patterson, who had always been an innovator, I don't think of it as selling out. When they sold to SCI, I think they were selling because they are like, oh, SCI, they yeah. know how the business yes. works. and they know that's the that, next level of innovation. And that's exactly wow. it. So they have continued that. So, I mean, the building is still there. You know, hopefully it will continue to yes. be there for many, many, many more years because it is a landmark yeah. building. 
Well, this was so interesting. At least it made me, I mean, I truly have not looked twice at that building. So I'm going to do that this week or this weekend. So yeah, get Victoria will get you the best picture yes. she always does. And like, like she said, <laughs> if anybody has the hookup. Yes, call us, email, anything. And I'll share some of these old advertisements Liz has been showing me. They're really great. Um, and that's it. And tell people where to listen to your podcast and how to find you on Instagram because I want, I want um, them to. So yes. So Tomb of the View podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Um, just search Tomb of the View Cemetery Pod. If you search Tomb, um, it is one of the first things to get to come um, on Spotify, <laughs> Apple Podcasts, wherever you are listening. And, you know, happy to. Um, I am going to be doing some weird and creepy stuff. I recorded a podcast last night and next week. I have taken a little bit of a hiatus just because life has been a bit crazy for the, the past month or so. But I'm coming back with some good stuff for Yay! Halloween. Yay! And, of course, I'll put links for everything. But um, I, I want to say thank you, Liz. I appreciate it. So there you have it, the story of H.M. Patterson and Spring Hill Mortuary. Thank you all for listening. Remember to leave a rating and or a review wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. I hope everyone has a great weekend, and I'll talk to you next week.